0: Hey, it's Katie, and I'm here to help you befriend your mind, body, and soul. If you stick around with me long enough, you might find that you're a mindful soul too. Hey, 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 how are you today? We made it to part three of this series on women in healthcare. And in last week's episode, I shared about the physical challenges that I had earlier this year with both an unexpected iron deficiency and post-viral syndrome after having COVID three times, lucky me. Before that, we discussed the healthcare system and medical gaslighting that often occurs with women, as well as the challenge for healthcare providers when physical health symptoms mirror mental health symptoms. So we chatted about things like vitamin and mineral deficiencies, thyroid problems, post-viral syndrome, that all have symptoms that look just like anxiety and should be ruled out medically prior to labeling something as just mental health or even somatic complaints. So if you haven't listened to the first two parts of this series, I would encourage you to hit pause and go back to catch up. This week, we are closing things out by talking about the mental stress of health issues. And I want to share some things that helped me in coping with some pretty significant anxiety as well as depression related to the health problems I was experiencing earlier this year. So I want to categorize this episode into four sections. The first to talk about how to cope mentally with the distress of physical discomfort or pain. I've spent a large portion of my career working with individuals who have chronic health conditions, and there's a huge mental aspect to this. Next, we'll talk about fear of the unknown when you're dealing with unexplained health problems or uncertainty about the future. Third, I want to talk about the social stigma of illness, especially for those who have permanent or very chronic health issues. And coping with the feeling of being on the outside, so to say, or even having FOMO when you're not physically capable of doing the social activities you're used to doing. And then finally, we'll touch on rebuilding trust in the body and learning to be in one's body even when there's pain or discomfort, as well as trusting the road to recovery so that you can push your edges and re-strengthen when it's time. I'm going to share about some amazing somatic healing sessions I did with a friend of mine, Irene Tracy. So let's jump in, starting with the emotional distress we feel with physical pain or discomfort. Now, I feel like this is one of the most fundamental human struggles we have with life in general. Life includes pain and we don't like it. I always like to use the word pain very generally so that you can apply it to your own personal experiences, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain. And we covered some of this in the episode about the mind-body connection as well, if you missed that one. And the truth is, we need pain. We have pain receptors for a reason in the body, and we have painful emotions for a reason imagine if you didn't feel pain, you would just leave your hand on a hot stove and you would get burned. So we need pain to a certain extent to survive. It's a messenger, right? So the goal can't be to completely stop pain. Here's the thing. It is incredibly natural as a living being to want to stop or avoid pain when we feel it. For the most part, I'm going to say there are some exceptions to this, of course, but those would be different subjects when people enjoy pain. Or even experiencing discomfort that's healthy, like exercise, like exercise can be painful, you know, our muscles get really sore, but it's, it's a healthy level of pain. So those are different subjects. But here, I'm talking about pain that we don't want. Of course, we want to do what we can in life to avoid illness, physical or emotional pain. But the truth is, we can't always do that. So, the very shitty solution here in these cases where we can't avoid it, we have to somehow learn how to accept it. Sometimes my clients hate the solutions I offer them. And honestly, I hate this one too. It's so hard. Acceptance and surrender of things we dislike that are uncomfortable is so hard, but they are always also my greatest saver. So, okay, real talk here. I always err on the side of being vulnerable. Whenever I get sick, I get so annoyed. And I almost always start out with a major victim complex. Like, why me? Make it stop. (laughs) And that's just the little tantruming child in me. Bless her heart. Eventually, I remember that the experience of being sick will be much smoother if I just let go and relax. And accept that I'm down for a while. And ironically, this point of acceptance is always the turning point where I start to feel better. It never fails. So what makes acceptance hard sometimes is we think if we accept something that's painful that we don't like, we think we're giving up or making light of it or approving of it. And that's absolutely not the case. So when I accept I'm sick, eventually, that's when I usually am actually able to do the things I need to do to get well. Slow down, sleep, nourish my body in the way that it needs. When I'm fighting or resisting it, those are all things I'm avoiding and not wanting to do. So of course, I just keep staying sick longer. Acceptance is a step-by-step process, which is taught with mindfulness practice. Um, I think it's something that we're rarely taught to do in society or growing up. We're taught a lot about how to try to make changes and force changes, but acceptance is a whole different skill set. It's something we have to do not just in the mind, but in the body too. Because remember, our body communicates to our mind. So if we're saying to ourselves, okay, fine, I accept this thing, but we're still clenching our jaw and there's tension in our shoulders and rigidity in the body, that doesn't count. And our body is still telling our brain that there's danger. So it's going to keep releasing stress chemicals in the brain, which I can promise you ain't helping the immune system. So this is where we have to be mindful and aware on purpose of how our body feels so that we can relax the tension, take some deep breaths, pull that acceptance through all the way. And this takes practice. As I said, it's a skill set and it's one that I work with my clients on and one that I'm also continually learning as well. The other way that mindfulness helped me when I was able to access mindfulness practice in the midst of my health problems, because remember, nobody is mindful all the time. And there's times that we struggle to access our skill set, no matter how much we practiced it. But when I could access my skill set of mindfulness, another thing that helped me is actual mindful awareness of the pain or discomfort which is something distinct, it's more than just regular awareness. So I was having all kinds of scary and uncomfortable physical sensations during these months, from my heart racing out of control to the inner seizure-like buzzing that was happening, my inability to think clearly or remember things, queasy stomach, I mean all kinds of shit. And when we pay attention to pain, with judgment, oh no, this is terrible, or resistance, which is trying to shove it away, make it stop, or even with attachment, which is like hyper-focusing in on the sensation, all this does is intensify our emotional suffering. Anxiety goes up, depression goes up, and this is where a lot of people really misunderstand mindfulness because they think paying attention to something will intensify the discomfort. But it's all about how you're paying attention that's going to make the difference. So it's relaxed, non judgmental, neutral, and curious attention and it's also the ability to purposefully shift our attention to something else when it's time to so we don't get stuck on something painful for longer than is helpful right let's chat now about coping with the fear of the unknown so up into this year i've been very lucky to be a fairly healthy person i've never been to the er before in my life for me personally anyway And I had never experienced these kinds of symptoms that genuinely felt like a threat to my life. I mean, our heart beating the way it's supposed to is somewhat critical to living. (laughs) So, you know, I was very concerned when I continued to have these wild symptoms after my third round of COVID, then they were lasting for months. I was genuinely afraid of my future. And seeing that Many people were struggling with these long term. And so here's where mindfulness of our thoughts comes in. Mindfulness is a practice of living in the present moment. This doesn't mean that we don't think about the past or the future, but when we do, we do it with awareness so that we can bring ourselves back to now when we need to. Because I'm sure you can relate, it's easy to get stuck thinking about. What's coming next? Planning, worrying, predicting, assuming. And the truth is, we can never know with certainty what the future will bring. So, to a certain extent, this is where we also have to bring in acceptance of the unknown. Again, a full bodied acceptance and surrender to the fact that we don't know what the future holds. Mindfulness of our thoughts. That is zooming out, watching your mind, noticing your thoughts, labeling them. This can help us identify when our thinking is getting stuck somewhere unhelpful. So you can say to yourself, that's an assumption thought. I can't predict the future. And then redirect your attention to the present moment. Engage in some self-soothing or maybe some distraction. We gotta be careful with distraction because we can overuse it, but sometimes we do need to distract. So if we're not practicing mindfulness, we have no control of our attention. We're in autopilot. We get lost in thoughts, we don't even realize where our mind has taken us, or we're unable to refocus on something that's more helpful in the moment. And I just want to say again that this takes practice. There's no getting around that. And this is why taking a structured mindfulness training program that gives you the chance to have accountability and create a new habit is so important. It's rarely a step that can be skipped if you really want to create lasting change. So let's talk about social stigma around illness now. And I want to acknowledge again that what I struggled with earlier this year was a flash in the pan compared to what many people deal with in terms of chronic health conditions. And we could talk super broadly about actual disabilities that many people live with. In general, people with illnesses and disabilities are often marginalized from society. And I did not face actual social stigma during my experience but I did feel some internal embarrassment, sort of stigmatizing myself, as I continued to be sick month after month after month. I was explaining to friends and family, excusing myself from social or work obligations, and I know for many people that I've talked to, feeling a sense of shame or embarrassment around long-term illness is common. So many people feel guilty here in the United States when they call out from work, which is really unfortunate. And it speaks to the workaholic culture that we live in, where you're deemed lazy or slacking if you aren't busting your ass 24-7. You're supposed to be mentally and physically invincible to continually produce for the money-making capitalist machine, right? And so there's always this feeling of being questioned. At least I felt this when I was employed. Is she really sick? You know, like how many days does she really need to be out? There's this stigma, especially here in the United States, I think, around being out for mental or physical health needs. When I was going through this at times, I did worry about what people would think about me and my health. Um, my partner Mark told me once that someone commented to him like, wow, Katie's sick a lot. And this person didn't really know me from before, so they didn't know my baseline for help. But I really didn't want illness to become part of my identity or what I was known for. And this is my own internalized social stigma for chronic illness. It's something that lives within our society. And I know through my working career with people who have permanent disabilities, that this can become a problem when all people can see about you is your illness, or maybe that becomes all you can see in yourself. So for people who struggle with more chronic issues, this is a super important thing to remember that you are a multifaceted person. And that your identity goes much further and deeper than this one part of your life experience, however consuming it may feel. And sometimes you need support from a coach or maybe a therapist even to parse that out, and that's okay. Another factor becomes that you're missing out on social events. I'm a very social person. I love being around my friend group. So there's just this sense of missing out on the fun when you have extended illness. And this is again where mindfulness of our thoughts is super important. Checking the facts on your thoughts, not describing situations to yourself in ways that's going to make you feel more miserable. And I just had to really reorient myself and remember that this was simply a temporary time period that I had to accept. There was plenty of fun to come in the future and just to hope and determine myself that I would be back to my usual self eventually. And social support is really important. Another thing in our Western society that sets us back is extreme individualism. We're told that we need to figure everything out on our own, and we're often shamed by society if we don't. So we learn to withhold our struggles from others, we isolate ourselves, and then we suffer more than we need to. I'm really blessed to have many close friendships and at least a couple of close family members who are still with me. And the truth is that their encouragement and presence through it all was a huge part of what buffered my mental health. I can't emphasize enough the importance of social support for our mental health. I think I'll do other episodes on building lasting and deep friendships because there's no doubt it takes intention and work to create these. One thing that I often help my clients with is finding community. Where can they find other individuals or groups of people that they can create social support and connectedness with? Because it is an absolute must for our mental well-being especially in times like this when going through difficult challenges. And I realize that many people worry about bothering others with their problems. And of course, there's a middle path or balance to be found in relationships. We want to be sure that give and take are generally equaled out over time. But feeling isolated as an outsider is not good for our health. So, taking those risks to reach out and open up is important. And the truth is, the right support system will be there for you as best as they're able to, just as you would be there for them, right? So, the last piece I wanted to touch on after dealing with an extended illness while on the road to recovery is learning to retrust the body. So even after I started feeling better for a few months, I've had and I continue to have sometimes this it's like hypervigilance about whether I can trust my body to do what I'm asking of it. Will it go to sleep when I need it to? Will my heart rate regulate when I need it to? Can I recall information when I need to? And I've slowly worked back up in my exercising. I'm actually... Currently preparing for a backpacking trip with a group of my close girlfriends. I'm not going to lie, I'm a bit nervous (laughs) because I still get some of these odd heart rate things, not like before. But from what I've learned, slowly reconditioning things through finding your edge is important. It's really easy to want to overprotect it and then get stuck in this restricted or contracted way of being. And so learning to be in the body and trust my body again has been a journey. And I think what's beneath this really is our relationship with our body. Again, a whole separate episode could dive into this, but after illness or even after trauma, and sometimes there's medical trauma that people experience, Um, Many people have this fearful, dissociative, or even angry relationship with the body. You kind of want to like disconnect from it. So learning to be in the body, even in discomfort, and then even trusting that relaxation and joy is safe is not as easy as one might think. Creating a friendship with your body is such a process and another worthy process that can happen within a coaching relationship. But practices like thanking your body for what it does to you, talking to your body with patience, and loving kindness. So loving kindness, by the way, is something called a meta-mindfulness practice where you send positive mantras and intentions to yourself and others So it's literally thinking loving thoughts about yourself and your body. May I be well? May I be at peace? May I be free from suffering? This translates 100% to the neurochemistry that fires in your brain, which can soothe everything. Something that can be helpful here too is somatic healing. Somatic being in the body or sensations in the nervous system, learning to connect with those sensations non-judgmentally, listen to them, and even shift them intentionally. One of my lovely friends, Irene Tracy, guided me through some somatic healing sessions that were seriously so helpful. And a big part of somatic healing is giving creative expression to the emotions and sensations felt in the body, whether it be with imagination, movement, or sound. It allows us to move the energy that we're feeling, both creating space for it and moving through and out from it. Um, I'm going to link her information in the show notes, but somatic healing is a super helpful practice. I do want to give a recommendation with somatic healing is that if you are experiencing any active symptoms of post traumatic stress disorder, resolve those symptoms first, working with a therapist, and learn a skill set for coping with those symptoms before diving into something like somatic healing with a coach. Because somatic healing requires an ability to tolerate and feel sensations in the body which sometimes with more active PTSD is not possible quite yet. So it can lead to flashbacks, triggered emotional responses that are difficult to regulate, and this can result in further dissociation or harmful avoidance behavior. So just a little recommendation there to work on resolving some of those more intense PTSD symptoms and get a skill set for managing those. And then you can move into some of this somatic work. Um, A well-trained somatic healer will also be assessing this with you prior to starting. So I hope this discussion was helpful to you. I hope you got some ideas that are beneficial. And as always, please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions about what I shared in this episode. I'm just a DM or an email away. I always love to connect. Be well, my friend. Ready to start your mindful soul journey? Sign up for my free life balance workbook linked in the show notes and come hang out with me on my email list. Can't wait to see you there.